0: Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, episode 39.
1: Is everybody in the world going to die
0: before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that
2: theory is the beginning of the solution?
0: What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing?
1: have ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. I believe this is going to be our finest
2: hour. Welcome to Searching
0: the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. This is Watchman Alexander. And Terry Arnold. Coming back for more of Genesis chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible because it just infuriates a lot of people and turns a lot of things on their heads. Um... What an interesting chapter and the way that it branches off into so many different topics, some of which are mysterious, some of which are shocking, but it's a good time. So we're going to keep going here. Uh, We talked about the corruption of all flesh last time. This time we're going to talk about the, the flood event itself, and we're going to see some of the things that are kind of hidden in there. I have a number of things to say about the flood narrative, but let's start off by just reading it. And then, Terry, I want you to to share any thoughts that you have first. How
1: do you want to break this up? You think we'll talk about uh, just the end of chapter six first and we'll circle back around to the rest of the actual happenings in chapter seven?
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: Let's go ahead and read through verses 13 through 22. Take it away. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him.
0: Way to go, Noah. <laughs> yeah. We all owe you a lot.
1: <laughs> Clearly. It's all of our ancestors, no matter what we look like now.
0: <laughs> yes. There's a lot here that other ministries tackle. So I don't feel like we should address a lot of the apologetics part of this in terms of how is this possible that he could have made this ark, and how uh, all, all of the different animals could have fit on it and all the logistical stuff with feeding them and the, you know, <laughs> their waste products and all that stuff. I'm going to leave that to other ministries that have already done a good job on that, but there are some things here that I think we should point out. So you go first. What do you see?
1: Oh man. Um, Step by step. Well, just according to what you just said, let me just add a little something to that, which is my understanding is that the animals were actually not full grown, mature animals. They were young. And so that that helps a lot as far as space. But um, verse 11 and also verse uh, 13, what God, when he's speaking to Noah and when he's talking about how he feels the number one thing that poses a problem that, that really grieves God most of all of the things mentioned here in this passage is violence, which in, in the Hebrew is Hamas. And some of you might hear that word Hamas and like automatically hear Hamas, like the, the one that's talked about now, one of, the, um, one of the extremist groups that is represented in the Middle Eastern area now. And that is indeed the same word. And yes, that is a part of what they're talking about. Yeah. Violence, right. Um, violence, which we take so lightly here in America, especially when it's portrayed in film and in other places, uh, we take it very lightly. Um, we start introducing children to seeing it and being uh what, what's uh What's the word? Uh, desensitized? Numb, numb and desensitized to it so early. But that's actually one of the key things um, that you should expect to see, since like Yeshua told us already, it will be like the days of Noah that arise in violence. And, and I don't just mean like, uh, you know, we, we think of, Oh, you know, you mean like the, the riots where they're like looting and, looting buildings and things like that no like beyond that violence again like with soul against soul and i say soul against soul because that actually connects with what god's saying here about who is going to be destroyed or what is going to be destroyed um i remember i, I watched some uh some kind of little kids movie actually i think it was uh, Creat- creatures great and small or something like that and uh, They were letting the things on the Ark. It was a movie about, like, it's an alternative story of the Ark story. And there was all of these creatures trying to check in to see if they could get on the Ark. And there was this strange family that it was following. And by the end of the movie, this family finds out that they actually were supposed to be water-dwelling creatures, which is why their names weren't on the list to get on the Ark, which is the whole Storyline: They're they're upset and they're trying to find a way to trick their ways to get on the ark, and then they find out, oh, we just didn't know we were supposed to live our whole lives. Um, And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, wait a minute, like, what about the the kid, the the things that are in the sea, right? And then I learned like that it was mostly the stuff on the ground that God was after, and not just stuff on the ground, but stuff that uh, breeds, especially. Um, but you know, these categories that we got here, uh, especially when we're talking about verse 20, it's the birds, right? It's the animals. And it says a lot of translations have every kind of creature that moves along the ground. Um, so in the Hebrew, I forget the exact Hebrew word that it is, but, uh, it's, it's literally like creeper. Um, a lot of words in the Hebrew, um, they double for a verb and a noun and like they, they use the roots very loosely. And so everything that creeps um, is really uh, what it says. And it just captures that in like one word that basically literally translated as creeper. So there's these three categories that are being preserved and saved. Um, and I'm, I, there's, I think there's a lot more to to glean from those three categories and, and their salvation as well.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned violence. I'd like to read a little snippet from the book of 2nd Baruch, which is prophetic and deals with what's going to be going on in the end times. I'm going to be reading from 2nd Baruch, chapter 27, which divides the last days into 12 parts. And starting in verse 1, this is what we read And he answered and said unto me, Into 12 parts is that time divided, and each one of them is reserved for that which is appointed to it. In the first part, there shall be the beginning of commotions. And in the second part, there shall be slayings of the great ones. And in the third part, the fall of many by death. And in the fourth part, the sending of the sword. Are you getting, a, are you hearing a pattern here? This is a lot of violence. Um, mm-hmm. You got commotion, which I would say is probably the phase that we're in right now, or we're at least coming into. But then the in the second against part, the machine. yeah, <laughs> yeah, raging against the machine. And in the second part, the great ones are slain. That is very interesting as well. I'm not going to get into it, but we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of powerful, uh, rich, influential people get taken out by the mob.
1: Yeah, and, and, then, and to, just to add something in there, uh, commotion, the literal definition is like civil insurrection.
0: There you go, exactly what's happening. And then you have the fall of many by death, and then many uh, people sending the sword, so instigating violence and then famine and withholding, and then verse 8, in the sixth part, earthquakes and terrors, and in the eighth part, a multitude of specters and the attacks of the Shadim, which are demons, and in the ninth part, the fall of fire, and in the tenth part, rapine and much oppression, that's rape and oppression, and in the eleventh part, wickedness and unchastity, and in the twelfth part, confusion from the mingling together of those things aforesaid. For these parts of that time are reserved and shall be mingled one with another and minister one to another. So a lot of that is uh, natural disaster related or supernatural stuff, but quite a bit of it, at least especially in the first four parts, is related to violence. So that would go along with what you were saying about these days of Noah that we're coming into. Yeah. All right. So because of this violence and and other wickedness, God is going to wipe everything out, and He says. In verse 13, I will destroy them, that being the living things, all the living things that have breath. I will destroy them along with the earth. Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, or at least it's going to seem this way, but I think that in the big picture, it is related to eschatology. When I say that the destruction of the earth resulted in the destruction of all of the structures and statues and the things that mankind had created. So the entire pre-flood world, whatever civilization was there, was really just wiped out. Uh, When God says he's going to destroy the earth, he doesn't mean the entire planet or the the plane, as some people would say. Uh, Clearly, that's still here. The mass of rock and magma and everything that we're sitting on is still here. That wasn't destroyed. When he says he's going to destroy the earth along with them, I think he's talking about the surface of the earth, everything that is upon the earth, that's all getting wiped out. Um, And we have a good confirmation of this in the book of first Enoch, where Noah, I believe, uh, when he's young, is given a vision of the flood event. I could be wrong. There's a portion that's about Enoch, and there's a portion that's about Noah. And I don't remember exactly who it was that had this vision. But in his vision, he says that even the mountains are suspended above the mountains and that the trees are all uprooted. Like everything has been. It's like everything has gone into a washing machine or one of those boxes that you put um, you put dirt with with gems or other you know interesting minerals in them, and it, the box is motorized so that it shakes back and forth for a while, and everything that's in this, the water that's contained within this box, everything is shaken up and displaced by that water and that motion, and so it separates; it all comes apart and you're able to get the minerals or the gems or whatever apart from the other stuff that was surrounding it. Yeah. And that, that is what I thought of when I read this vision. What that tells me is all the stuff that we find that's very ancient is nonetheless from after the flood. This is particularly important when we talk about megalithic structures. And later on, we're probably, hopefully going to get into talking about who made all of the megalithic remains, the ruins that are Are still in many parts of the world um, that share all these characteristics and have some very, they have things to do with key figures, powerful men who lived early after the flood. So, all of that stuff, some people are teaching these days that ruins, megalithic ruins at places like Alantutambo were created before the flood and survived through the flood. And I'm contending that no, nothing survived through the flood. And even if it had, I think they would show water damage. I think they would show evidence of erosion by liquid, and that's not the case. We don't see that on them. Um, so I think they were built after the flood. There, there may have been a few things underground that survived that were kind of carved into rock, um, like at Gaza, um, or I'm sorry, at, at Giza, because that is a huge piece of bedrock, and there are tunnels carved down into it, and so water. Would certainly have done some damage, but it may not have destroyed everything that was within that um, huge slab of rock. But anything on the surface,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So under basically the whole land mass that's under where the pyramids are. Yeah. That discussion is something that will come in handy for us later. It's not super relevant right now, but I figured this was the time to bring it up. Yeah, that's good.
1: Hold it right there, watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from The Watchman's Wife, Amanda
2: Lawrence. Welcome to Everything Under the Sun with The Watchman's Wife. Now, this is going to be a very short episode because basically it's just a reminder for us that we need to be studying everything in scripture, regardless of whether or not we like it. The word that the Lord gave me to focus on this year is deeper, that I'm supposed to go deeper into my relationship with him. And while I could talk about that on a whole other podcast episode, and I might someday, right now I need to go into loving him with my mind a little bit more. And I need to start studying the parts of the Bible that I typically just kind of gloss over. Um, or don't read as frequently as the other books. When I said to the Watchman this evening that I was talking about eschatology on the podcast, he asked if I was feeling all right, which makes him sound sweet and caring, but he's not. Okay, he generally is, but in this instance, his sarcasm was aimed at the fact that I generally shy away from the very topic that he teaches and researches so thoroughly, and that's the very reason that I chose to discuss it today, because a lot of people don't talk about it, even in churches. So while I'm not discussing eschatology, I'm discussing the fact that we don't discuss eschatology. For me, it's been sort of a circular issue. I didn't grow up hearing it taught from the pulpit. It was never a small group study or a Bible class at my Methodist hometown church. I sort of thought it was relegated to the scholars. And then if anything really important and timely popped up, surely word would get out and all of the churches would start teaching it and people would be clamoring for knowledge, right? Well, we know that's not the case. And I think I was able to make that incorrect assumption for so long because I wasn't hearing differently from anyone else in church leadership. And I don't know if it's because the topic is too difficult to understand or if it's scary or confusing or what. But basically, this is just a call for us to remember that the whole Bible is applicable. God says he'll give us wisdom when we ask. And we live in a time where there are way too many resources available for us to claim that we didn't have a way to learn. Now, I happen to be married to a man who can teach me well and can direct me to other teachings that I can trust if need be. My relationship with God, though, is my responsibility. So I still need to test everything that I learn against scripture to make sure that it lines up. But when I didn't know how to start testing scripture against scripture, I got with someone who did. So now is when I normally say that you can reach me at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com. But I want to add, if you don't know where to start studying prophecy or eschatology, please email me. I'll go with The Watchman and I'll get resources over to you. Now, Alex gets a lot of emails from y'all up to and including those who believe themselves to be the Antichrist. I wish I was joking. So I'm trying to take a little off of his plate. So you can reach me and The Watchman's resources at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, this this word here for ark, the other place that it it is it shows up is with Moses. So the basket that he is put into is literally called an ark. And so the imagery there of when Moses is placed into the his own ark and is put into the water, right? Because that's where he's drawn out and he gets his name, Moshe, right? From that, because it means to be drawn out. Uh that that's actually the last place it appears as I am looking right now. Exodus two, verses three and five. So it's not even the same as the other word for ark, um, like the ark of the covenant. That's a different word, which actually sounds closer to Aaron. It's like a haron or something along those lines.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, but that is interesting uh, about the parallels there. And the fact that everybody else died, all of the children his age died, except for him, because he was in the Ark, and therefore he survived. Right. I wonder if there is any kind of connection to the Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, that's for another time. But Mm -hmm. this Ark is relevant to the discussion of eschatology, because the amount of time that they were sealed in the Ark, both before the water began and after, has some bearing on the amount of time that God's people specifically his bride are going to be taken to a safe place and preserved yeah. during the time of fire not not the flood but the fire. We said in the last episode that these things are a type and I think I I wrote somewhere that it's like an echo but in reverse. The flood narrative is the echo that you hear first and then the source of the sound comes later. The theological word for that is Prefigurement um, or type, and not only is the entire flood event prefiguring what's going to happen, but details of it as well. So one thing I'd like to point out actually is in the next section. So I, I better say, <laughs> chapter seven. Yeah, I was I waiting for my, first.
1: Yeah, so at chapter seven um, it actually has a, a literary structure. Um, so when you look up chiastic structure on Wikipedia, chiastic is spelled C H I A S T I C, which just is a fancy word for it's a cross or mirroring uh, structure. The The times, especially like the weeks uh, that Alex was just mentioning, it actually mirrors across the whole time that Noah and his family and, uh, and the animals and creepers and all of that stuff is in in the ark. And so we'll see that here when we get into uh, chapter seven.
0: Isn't that interesting? Okay. Can you go ahead and read chapter seven for us or at least a portion of it?
1: Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, there's 24 verses here. Uh, I'll read the first 12 and if you can read the last 12 and then we can see the whole structure here. Sounds good. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day of the second month. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights.
0: Picking up at verse 13. On that same day, Noah entered the ark with Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, accompanying them. They and every animal of every species. All the livestock of every species, every animal that creeps on the ground of every species, and every bird of every species, all sorts of winged creatures, they went into into Noah in the ark, couples from every kind of living thing that breathes. Those that entered went in, male and female, from every kind of living being, as God had ordered him, and Adonai shut him inside. The flood was forty days on the earth. The water grew higher and floated the ark so that it was lifted up off the earth. The water overflowed the earth and grew deeper until the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water overpowered the earth mightily. All the high mountains under the entire sky were covered. The water covered the mountains by more than 22 and a half feet. All living beings that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, other animals, insects, and every human being. Everything in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. Whatever was on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing on the surface of the ground, not only human beings, but livestock, creeping animals, and birds in the air. They were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left, along with those who were with him in the ark. The water held power over the earth for 150 days. So, a couple things before you start to talk a little bit more about the, the structure of this. Mm-hmm. This, is of not, stuff here. <laughs> this is not, this is not, and this, what I'm about to say is a little bit of apologetics. I can't help myself. Um, This is not a local flood event for people who are trying to describe this as some sort of a local event. uh, I don't know how you can possibly support that. Everything was destroyed from the dry land by water that went up over the tops of the mountains. In fact, 22 and a half feet over the tops of the mountains. That's impossible if you're describing only a local flood event. Once the water crests the peaks of the mountains, even if you had a situation where mountains were basically forming a wall, which we don't really find, but let's assume for a second that that was something that uh, that existed in the pre flood world like basically a bowl with mountains all around it, and the rim of these mountains was very high um, Once the water crested the peaks of those mountains, that water flows out over that bowl into the rest of the world. You can't have water twenty two feet over the tops of the mountains and not go out and flood the rest of the world that's just uh, not how physics works. Also, I wanted to point out that every living thing with a soul with the breath of life in it died, um, which means there are things that are not living that didn't die. And that would include things like microbes um, and things like certain insects, maybe worms, um, those types of creatures which do not have breath. But they don't breathe in the sense that uh, the higher order creatures do. And so the Bible makes a distinction that science doesn't make. Because science says that a microbe is living in the same way that a human being is living. And the Bible says that that's not the case. There are things that have a soul. Those are living creatures. There are other creatures that are just animated. They don't have a soul. Those are not living. Anyway, that's an aside, but that's something we talked about on this podcast before. So I thought I'd bring it back up.
1: Yeah. And this this marking of time here is also really important for us, right? When it's Breaking down to the day, how old Noah is, what day, what month it is, um, all of these things we gotta we gotta know, right? If, if this is something that happened that long ago, and it it's noting the day very explicitly, there's something being told to us here yes. that we have to ask about. We have to ask Adonai about, like, what are you trying to tell us here, God, about this sequence of events, about the time frame? Um, and uh, Alex, you want to talk about the, the parallel of the 600th year uh, to, I, I think sure. you've talked about it other times on the podcast, but.
0: Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Noah was 600 when the flood began and 600 is a fractal of 6,000. So let I me mean, just drop the zeros. The important digit here is six. Uh, we know that the earth will be six times a thousand years old when the millennium begins. So the day of the Lord is at the end of 6,000 years of history. Now, when that began, we can argue about, but definitely it is the end of the sixth millennium that brings in the day of the Lord. And so knowing that the final destruction, the destruction by flame is a, I want to say an echo, but I think the better word is probably rhyme. It rhymes with the destruction (laughs) by the flood. Uh, then then we have, and immediately we see the parallel there between the years of Noah and the years of the earth at the time of these two destructions. Right. Right. And then we we can keep going with that kind of numerology in this passage because we see they were in the ark for seven days and then there was 40 days and 40 nights of of destruction, um, of flooding specifically. Well, let's just start with the seven days. A lot of dispensationalists have caught onto this idea and have taught that the seven days of Noah and his family being shut up in the ark before it rained is the equivalent of seven years that God's bride will be shut up in the chappa, the safe place in heaven, while the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. And break, those down, last days. break
1: down what the term dispensationalist means briefly for our, our listeners.
0: Uh, It's a type of premillennialism. So it's a futurist approach to prophecy, which I agree with. That part's correct. Um, But they go into, they create a doctrine whereby there are dispensations throughout history. And God was working differently in each dispensation. So the plan or the program of God is kind of a new thing in each dispensation and I, I totally disagree with that, but that informs their eschatology. I mean, how can it not? So how you break down God's program of salvation and, uh, and redemption and, and judgment throughout all of history really is going to determine what you think is happening in the last days and how you decipher those prophecies.
1: Yeah. And just to connect that even more, so dispensation is kind of a big fancy word for like an era or a time time period, a fixed time period, uh, normally of the same size. And so they break it down and they say, well, God talked this way from years zero to 2000, uh, using an example. And then from years 2000 through 4000, he talks this way to everybody and has this set of rules. And then basically with each new era, and like it, it almost gets presented like God changes what he does, which is you know, on the base level, it's true. Like it, there is some development that happens. But the part that normally gets missed is that there's a thread that connects through all of the time time frames uh, that we go in and out of. And so um, dispensationalists typically make a much thicker line in between each stage when it's it's much more blurry than that. And it's also much more connected than that. Um, You know, this is also how uh, a lot of people go, well, we need to only pay attention to the New Testament because that's that's the dispensation that we're in. And we don't need to pay attention to the stuff that happened before law of Moses or laws even. And so that that kind of thinking basically tries to wall off what time you're in and say, I only need to worry about the stuff that's going on right now. I don't need to care about anything from before,
0: which is a big Um, mistake. Right. You, you can't separate that out and say, oh, well, there was a dispensation of law, and now we're in the dispensation of grace. Excuse me. God has always had laws. God has had regulations since the very beginning, which we've already talked about on this podcast before. Um, even right after the garden, in the garden, but, but also right after the expulsion from the garden, there were regulations in place. And uh, Cain was not in God's good graces because he wasn't following the directions. Yeah. Um, and God still has lost today, which we see thousands of them in the New Testament. So you can't break it up like that. It's, it's really a sequence of covenants that build upon each other to approach a given goal.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I want to say here is that, you know, we're not saying that to condemn people who think uh, with a dispensational uh, mindset, because that's not really what we're after. We're, we're after truth. And sometimes the truth is not quite as simple as we would like it to be, right? It's more complicated than that. And even what we've said here about dispensationalism doesn't really cover all of the different flavors of it and different thoughts that people have behind it. And so I'm saying all of that to say, you know, this is not a a condemnation message to everybody who's dispensationally thinking it. While we do believe that it's a mistake to think of that strictly in that manner, there there are ways for even someone who thinks dispensationally to grasp some of the concepts we're talking about right now.
0: Yeah, that's right. So they would say that the seven days in the ark are equivalent to the seven years. And I can see why they would make that association because I see it too. I just Mm -hmm. don't equate them to years. I don't find any place in scripture that would allow me to, to use that kind of an algorithm where days equal years. That's not to say that there isn't an example of that maybe somewhere. I haven't. Uh, There's some examples.
1: Uh, Yeah, I got some. So I want to say it is Ezekiel. Yes, Ezekiel, when he when he is rationing food, according to the punishment of the Israelites for the years which they did not uh, keep Sabbaths. Um, and there's also the Exodus. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. (laughs) There we go. The, in the Exodus story, we got that as well, where the edict from God for the days that the spies spy out the land, which is the 40 days, they get 40 years to match that in the wilderness that they have to wander after disheartening the people to not go up and do what the Lord was telling them to do and taking the land of Canaan. So there, are examples of this, um, but to kind of talk about what Alex is mentioning here, that that doesn't mean that we can guarantee that 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 the seven days is seven years, but you just have to be able to allow that parallel to be there. That that that's a very possible, and for me, it's a likely uh, connection. <clears throat>
0: It says well, where that bothers me is that in those other instances, we have an explanation of that. Like God lays that equation out for us. He says, yeah. these days are going to equal these years. And in this case, we don't have that. Um, and so it makes it, I hesitate then to impose that on the text when it's not given. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's possible. I would rather though, interpret it as days equaling days so that Literally, if this is repeated in the end, it's going to be seven days that the people of God are shut up. And I think that that makes more sense when you look at Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot. Right. You're in it for seven days. That's, that's literally the honeymoon period when the bride and the groom are together in the chapa for seven days before they come out and have the wedding feast. So that's a very easy connection for me. And to then go beyond that and try to impose a seven years. Type of paradigm doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. And so, and to follow that a little bit, um, so that because there's other numbers here, which we'll get into more, and we, we might, we'll probably have to save the chiastic stuff for next time. But uh, the, the other days here, right? We got the seven days and then there's the 40. And then later we're going to find out that there's basically this 150 day period in the middle. And then it comes back around. Um, all of these things, are saying something, right? They're telling us something, they're telegraphing something that is hidden at this time, and that's encoded as we we talk about. And so the whole encoding, neither me nor Alex have that of what's being telegraphed by the Holy Spirit here, right? And so that's why Alex has his hesitance about saying, okay, seven days is seven years, because we don't have the whole picture. Like, you, if you're going to do that, you also have to match the 40 days. Well, how do you interpret the 40 days? Is it 40 days, or is it 40 years, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, if you run into consistency problems as you keep going through, that's why. I, like, while I lean towards the seven years, I I only lean that way because my understanding is that uh, the covenant that gets broken is a week of sevens, or uh, is a part of that Daniel week. And so the only reason why I, I allow for that for myself is because I get that that seven that last week of the seventy weeks of Daniel is to come, and so I don't know where that fits, and I honestly don't know which seven it is. Even in this passage, I just see that it's seven, right? And so um, my very simplistic way of looking at is likely very very wrong or very incomplete. And so that's why um, I also don't jump on the dogmatic bandwagon where I say it has to be this way or it can't be anything else, which I, I've seen that from a lot of guys uh, who are really smart guys and they, they love the Lord and they know their stuff. Uh, guys like Ken Johnson, who I, I really respect, he's one that would, would put forth that same kind of idea. Um, I just am not completely sold on things like what Ken and others have, have said. Uh, Because I just see some stuff missing that makes me go, I can't I can't say for certain that that is how it is.
0: Yeah, I hear you on that. We can't be dogmatic. Keep in mind, though, that what we see here is people being protected for seven days before the water of the flood starts, not during and what the dispensationalists would tell you is that the people of God are protected in heaven while the wrath of God is being poured out on earth for seven years, but that's not a picture that we have.
1: It's more, it's it's much more detailed than that, which we'll get into here when we dive more into the structure here of chapter seven and also chapters eight and nine, because the, the chiastic structure actually began back in uh, Genesis chapter six, verse 10. And it continues all the way through uh Genesis 9, verse, verses 18 and 19. So it's actually really big, but this part has some of the number stuff pretty heavy.
0: Um, well, that'll be fun to hear about. I'll yeah. let you regale us with that at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. Awesome we'll talk. Alright, well, guys, that's all the time we have for today. Until next time, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Watch me now.
1: Shalom.